This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Greetings. Today's interview is with playwright and poet Nicole Palmer. Nicole Palmer is a trained journalist, dramatic writer, and published author with more than 25 years of experience writing and editing for multicultural, mainstream, and faith-based audiences. She is an alum of the Kennedy Center Playwriting Intensive, as well as a former playwright in residence at the Warehouse Performing Arts Center in Cornelius, North Carolina. She recently accepted a post as the North and South Carolina Regional Representative for the Dramatist Guild. Nicole's latest project, Prophecy to the Bones and Other Stories Black Folks Whisper is the culmination of a year of research and conversation with the Davidson African-American community and other allies. This play is slated to debut with the Davidson Community Players in May 2022. My conversation with Nicole was deep, informative, and delightful. I hope her wisdom resonates with you as much as it did with me. Enjoy. Okay, so... Thank you so much, Nicole, for talking with us. I'm so excited to dig into this conversation. So if you would, just please sort of introduce yourself to our listeners, talk about your journey, whether that be educational, artistic, or otherwise. How did you get to this moment? Okay. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Nicole Palmer. I am originally from Gary, Indiana. Yes, the land of the Jackson Five. (laughs) <laughs> and I have had a an interesting journey just in terms of getting from Gary, Indiana to where I am currently, which is Charlotte, North Carolina, and everywhere in between. So I am a an alum from Northwestern University, as well as New York University, where I received my Master's of Fine Arts degree in Dramatic Writing. But I, my undergraduate work at Northwestern was in journalism. So you can say that I decided to study all things writing because I didn't know where I was going to end up. And I did do journalism when I first got out of school. I was a copy editor and a columnist. And I realized very quickly that journalistic writing was not the kind of writing I wanted to do in terms of telling stories. I've been a storyteller since I was a kid writing poetry since I was 12, loving the feel of words since I was seven and probably younger than that. I liked how words came through the pencil and onto the paper. I liked how words felt in my mouth and being able to use different ones to describe things, to understand things, but to really be able to tell the stories of people around me, right? So that's, you know, my mother seeing this in me, she and dad, they said, okay, to journalism, you go. And, you know, being being a teenager, you're like, okay, well, that sounds interesting. And then it's not until you really get to college or maybe, you know, d- depending upon your influences, where you get to decide and discover and, and see if that's really what you want to do. I learned from a really good friend of mine that I liked the dramatic arts. I had tried my hand at playwriting. It was really bad. When I was about 15, <laughs> oh, it was so bad. It was about 15. And because I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, someone said, oh, you know, write a play. Yeah, okay. Didn't know all the things that go into playwriting. Just thought you had a bunch of characters that said a lot of lines. And that's not it. <laughs> that's, not, that's not all there is. That's yes, not ma'am. all there is. No, there, there's so much more. 
But the love of storytelling and creating characters, and especially characters who looked like me, who were uh, living a life like mine that I didn't see growing up on television. I didn't see growing up in film. You know, they didn't exist as I was coming up. Not to say that I'm a, you know, I am a, a Generation X woman. So, you know, I'm not a millennial. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a next gen or a Gen Z. That's not me. I am a Gen Xer. And growing up, that's not what we saw. Those kind of stories were not being told. So going into school, I wanted to tell stories that had people of color at the center, that had women at the center, and that didn't really have to do with or only with relationships. And I also wanted big girls at the center because I was a sister who, you know, had curves, still do. And, you know, big girls didn't get men. Never. We, we, weren't, we weren't the love interest. And I'm yeah. like, doggone it, I'm going to be the love interest in my stories. Yes. The so, best friend or yeah, the... Yeah, we were always the sidekick. Or like, the, so the comic relief. Yeah. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. Our lives didn't matter or <laughs> were not worthy of center stage. And I said, that's ridiculous because the women in my life were fun and loud and intelligent and funny and smart. And they had relationships that were complicated and beautiful, passionate. And we didn't live in the ghetto. We were middle cat the middle class folks. So we weren't we didn't do street. We didn't do that wasn't what was in our sphere. But we didn't see that on TV either. We saw yeah. stereotypes. So when I was going to school, I said, okay, you know what? I want to learn how to tell stories of people who look like me, living like me, better, worse, but having a a range of stories, right? Journalism loved the discipline, the ways of, of capturing story, but I wanted more. I needed more. So I took myself to NYU. And funny thing about that, I had, I applied twice. So the first time I didn't get in and I called and I said, yo, I'm supposed to be there. I just don't know how to get there. And the person who answered the phone was a brother from Chicago. So what he did was he sent me a list of books to teach me how to write a screenplay. And I took the man's advice, sight unseen. I wrote my first screenplay. And then after I wrote the screenplay, he told me to rewrite it. And I did that. And then I submitted. He said, okay, now you need to make a trip. So I did. (laughs) I flew myself to to New York and walked the hallways of NYU before getting in. And that second time I was put on a wait list. And then I was called off the waiting list by Gary Garrison, who just, who was at one point with the Dramatist Guild in terms of, of leadership. And he's gone on to do different things. But he called me up. He said, Nicole Palmer. I said, yes, sir. And since I had already been up there, I knew his voice. So we had a great conversation. He said, welcome to NYU. And I think I screamed right there in the middle of my living room. I was so excited. I went up to New York with $600 in my pocket and not knowing how I was going to pay for anything. I get up there and a week later, there was a full ride. Yeah, exactly. So it ended up being, I am getting a graduate assistantship for three years. It didn't cover housing, but it covered tuition. Yeah, which so is a huge yeah, chunk. Is, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. But I was in New York for three years learning how to write. And just feeling freed. Studying at Northwestern was a wonderful basis. Getting to New York freed my voice. And grateful for people like Gary Garrison, the other professors who were there, who were just Richard Wesley, my mentor there. Um, Just phenomenal people. Just really phenomenal teachers, phenomenal program, phenomenal 
everything. So if there are people out there who are listening, who are trying to figure out if they want their MFA, go to NYU, go to Tisch. They will not steer you wrong. You will learn and find your voice in, in writing, period. So after NYU, went out to LA because I figured I had two choices. New York was expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and I had some friends in Los Angeles. So I was out there for eight years. Oh my God, talk about a different world. Woo! Mm-hmm. I, I discovered very quickly I'm an East Coast child. Same. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Their ocean is weird. <laughs> it really is. But even even more than that, the sensibilities, the yes, vibe, create the vibe. East Coast is so much different than West Coast. And after having been trained in the East Coast to go west was like a fish out of water experience. Even though I had several friends who were out there and they were, you know, kicking butt and taking names, I just was not one of the bunch. It was hard. LA was... Yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ma'am. Would you talk a little bit about how your background in journalism influences your playwriting? Yeah. One nice thing about journalism, it teaches you how to research. So... In all of the pieces that I've written, they have been researched to death or to life, depending upon which way, you know, which way you want to go. It gives you the discipline to understand everything about your piece inside and out so that you can answer whatever question your director may have about what's happening in the moment. And then that also tells you, okay, well, maybe I need to write a little bit more. But journalism, at least for me, gave me discipline, taught me to research taught me not to be afraid to ask tough questions of why am I writing this piece now? Why is it that important? Who is this piece for? What do I want people to get out of the piece? So, you know, being able to ask critical questions and being able to have the answers for those critical questions. uh, I think that would be my, that, that would be it in terms of discipline, in terms of research that journalism gives and also understanding how to be an eyewitness Mm. Understanding the details of a thing because journalism makes you get after details. You can't really write a strong, in my humble opinion, write a strong journalistic article without those details. Yes, I agree. Being able to do that in a play, oh my God. And the more detailed it is, the more universal it becomes in a way. Yeah. In a way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, where people can find themselves in the midst of your piece, even though they don't look like you or have that experience, they're going, no, but that's a mama move. Mm-hmm. Or mm, my daddy says something like that, you know, uh-huh. or whatever your world is. You know, it, it teaches you to really get down to the details. So I would say those three things. Excellent. How would you describe or categorize your work? Or would you categorize your work? Um, it's character driven. My stories come from the people and their issues and their, their faux pas and their questions and their quests their journeys. You know, I know some people will say they get a snatch of dialogue or, you know, they want to talk about a particular topic. And mine is usually, okay, but how am I going to get in this piece? So it, I would say first and foremost, is character driven. I am not a comedic writer on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I say that as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've got friends who can, you know, rip off a joke a line, right? I'm not that kind of writer. You know, if they you know when the humor shows up, it's showing up in the moment and in the way that I have people talking with one another. But trust and believe I wasn't trying to do it on purpose. I'm getting better 
at finding the funny and finding the light because I can, you know, I don't, I gravitate toward flawed characters and topics that nobody else wants to discuss when those are the very topics that we have to discuss as people to free us and to help heal us. So, you know, if I were to say anything like that now, do I have a style? I have no problem going in and out of reality, meaning I like working with the consciousness as well as with the reality of a thing. And then, you know, putting both of those, putting what's going on in the head and the heart actually on the stage and giving it a life. Some of my longer pieces, I realize that's what I do because I'm interested in those things. I'm interested in what's going on in the head and the heart and how to actually display that and giving it a life. But I lean toward drama. And like I said, if you if something's funny, I wasn't trying. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. So you are a strong advocate for self-producing, for not waiting for a theater or for an opportunity even to come about to present work, to just get out there, do it yourself, make the contacts, find the space, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Would you take us through how you approach and execute a self-production process? Oh my gosh. Well, it's when you're looking at the work, you've got to decide, okay, well, do I have, you know, what's the audience for this? So where am I going to be? Mm-hmm. And how big is the, you know, how big is it? And where is it, where's it going to land? So if you have a, a place that wants to do the stuff, then you're going, okay, so I don't have to necessarily pay for the space because that in itself is the big thing. I've, we've done stuff in, I've done stuff in coffee houses and churches and schools. And so I'd never really had to pay for the space. There may be things lacking in the space that I had to help augment. And then yeah. sometimes you know, if it's a smaller piece, if we're just doing like monologues, you can do those in a coffee house. So those are not, those aren't hard. You know, it's just a matter of, oh, you know, choose a night where it's going to be crowded and a night that, you know, you're working with the owners and they say, hey, you can have this space on such and such a day. You know, we charge something nominal. I worked with um, a brother by the name of Antonio David Lyons, my brother friend, my creative, creative push. He has helped me. Oh God, we've been friends for half our lives. Fabulous actor in Los Angeles. I give him a shout out and and actor in New York and South Africa doing his thing. Mm. So he and I produced a performance reading series in LA and we had a coffee house. We had, we had a couple people who owned the coffee house and they said, yeah, y'all can put up work here. So we did it for a year and didn't take a lot except for a will, letting people know that this is what you were doing and finding actors who were hungry. So, you know, overhead was easy. So in stuff like that, that was a performance reading series. We were doing monologues and five minute pieces and 10 minute pieces. And if you have a will and you're willing to add, you know, add to the process, you know, roll up your sleeves and everything else, you do it. We weren't waiting. We were, we were hungry. We were younger. We were young people who were going, Hey, if we want to get our stuff out there, we got to do it ourselves. We can't wait for quote unquote director to do it. And I would say like a will and like, and some imagination. I think sometimes, especially young artists get so attached to the physical space, like the physical space of a theater. And, you know, and you're talking about, you know, we would consider in the industry, like non-traditional spaces, you know, Mm -hmm. churches and, and coffee houses and warehouses are also, so I just think it's, I just wanted to reinforce that, that very often we get very attached to a theater space and there are lots of ways to tell stories and lots of places to do it. Shoot, I've done it in libraries and, you know, wherever people are saying, hey, you know, we'll give you some space. Then you say yes. Make sure, you know, that means you have to write all the time. That means your stuff has to be in the position of ready. 
So when the space comes up, you say yes and you, you make it happen. <clears throat> it doesn't, doesn't have to be thousands of dollars, but it needs to be good. You can be creative and make stuff work. When moving into the churches, it was more of a church where I belonged, as well as maybe, you know, the other one was a church where my mother belonged and, and someone saw something that I was doing and they wanted to do it too. And, you know, they were interested in telling stories for their congregations. They just didn't know how to do it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go in and teach you. So we, you know, you use, you utilize whatever's there and you make that shine. Yeah. That means you, that means it was a lot of teaching. It was utilizing people who had never been on a stage and hadn't had an acting class, but they had some natural ability and they were willing to do the work. So be willing to work with people. I've put up work at the dance studio in Gary. The kids, you know, it was young people. They were hungry and, and they had no preconceived notions, which is another thing. It's like, okay, good. We can just do this. You know, they were dancers, but they wanted to learn how to, as I called, dance above their necks because sometimes they would have these beautiful body movements and no expression on their face. <laughs> so I taught them how to have facial expression. And then they wanted to put together a piece. So we wrote some poetry and put dance and acting to it. Just awesome. be creative and get out of your own way. Yeah. What I'm hearing is go and engage in the community that you're already in, which exactly. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of community. Thank yeah. you, ma'am. What have you found for you personally to be the most challenging thing about self-producing or something that people often forget or don't think about when it comes to putting on a show? Being creative around finances. <laughs> that's, that's, that's with everything. Being creative with your marketing. And it's Can you not- give me an example where you've been creative with your marketing or where that was needed? Oh, this was before social media. Oh, this will be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we didn't have Facebook and uh, we couldn't tweet. There was no IG for it. Gosh, you're so, making me nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you have to get your posters out. You got a, a lot of handbills going into places where there are a whole lot of people that whom you don't know and getting outside of yourself and just saying, hey, who likes theater? And folks go, oh, you know, I do. I say, great, there's a new show coming. You know, just sell yourself. But always having those cards with you, right? Which means you had to have a, you had to be creative in terms of making the cards. So, you know, it's okay to get a stack of 500 for X amount of dollars and make sure you got a friend who's also great, a graphic artist. So that cost itself could be slashed. And, you know, the, the deal could be, okay, I can barter with you. If you do the graphics, I'll make sure we put your information on the graphics so that people know that that's what you did. And, yeah. and then you, you, you pay for the mm-hmm. printing and then you keep it moving. You know. Has it gotten easier for you since social media became so prevalent? Uh, easier? No, because now you're, now you, it's, for me, it's the same kind of hustle. So you still have to, you know, I can reach wider people. Mm-hmm. It's easier in terms of the finances are not as deep. Because once you have your graphic image, you can then say, okay, share Mm -hmm. and just getting people to share. What the other thing that I found challenging was getting, not just getting any audience, but especially, especially dealing with some children's pieces, getting the parents to invest beyond just sending them to rehearsal. That's the one that broke my heart is that the kids would have rehearsed for a deep length of time. And when it came time to actually do the piece, some parents didn't even show up. So there wouldn't be an, there wouldn't be an audience for the babies. 
And that's the one thing that broke my heart is that we had, you know, trying to get that parental engagement, but it's also working with community, right? So even though you may be in the community, you may be working with the community, it doesn't mean that the community is going to show up all the time to actually watch what you've created. You're hoping they do. And, you know, getting to the point to where even having to prep some of my kids and saying, okay, look, we're going to do this piece for us. Don't worry about who's out there. Yeah. And they're like, ah. I said, don't, I said, we're going to have fun together. We, we've, we've rehearsed, we've practiced. We're going to, even if it's just two people out there, we're going to give them a show that is fantastic, you know, and having to prep your 40 to 50 kids who have put together something wonderful and it's not even an audience with 40 to 50 people. So, you know, we've had to, that part was heartbreaking. Yeah. But outside of that, you know, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard work, but it's a lot of fun. So you are in the process of self-producing right now. Would you tell us about that project? Actually, I'm, actually, I'm not self-producing this one. <gasps> this, is, this is being done through a community theater, Davidson Community Players. And the piece is called Prophesy to the Bones and Other Stories, Black Folks Whisper. So it is currently scheduled for May 25th to May 29th. It's world premiere. It's a different process because the last time that I was produced, I was in Los Angeles. Wow. So it's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. And the things between LA and right now has been self-produced because I, I just, I'm like, look, although I have to say I have had a couple pieces done in, and this was actually starting with 2020. I decided to put my work out there and submit work to different contests and things of that nature. The, the one nice thing about having a strong internet is now you can surf and go, okay, I got this work. Are there any contests out there? And I was like, Lord and behold, there's so many contests. So I started submitting work and I got a, uh, a one minute play up at Ithaca done. And this was during the time of, of virtual plays. Mm-hmm. So there was a virtual one done in Ithaca. There was a virtual one done in Philadelphia. There was a, another virtual one done in Miami and monologues, one minute play, a poem that went viral on Facebook. The theater in, in Philadelphia said, hey, you know, I, I kind of want to see what's what with that. And then that same one was then sent to Miami, which was kind of cool. Um, I have a play, a 10 minute play going up in Orlando this summer, and that'll be the world premiere for that one. But the full length piece is uh, slated to be done at DCP, the Armour Street Theater in Davidson, uh, North Carolina. Congratulations. I'm so Thank sorry you. that I misunderstood. So, no, you no, were, no. so you've arrived is what I'm hearing. <laughs> After two years of toiling and, and, and submitting to all of these contests and these, you know, these anthologies, it sounds like you've really come to. So what is, how has the process been different, easier, harder, um, sure. working with an established organization? It's been different. Mm-hmm. Because I was used to making all the decisions. <laughs> so I'm used to, you know, I'm, I was used to having total control. <laughs> One of the benefits of self-producing. One is, of the benefits yeah. of self-producing. You know, you can decide if these are the actors you want to keep, if this is the, the theater you want to work in, if this is the space, if the, you know, you have all that control. So as this was a commissioned piece from the Davidson Community Players. This was, of course, after George Floyd. And the racial uprising, they came to me, you know, as someone who was who had been teaching with them for a couple of years and they wanted to do a story about the African-American community in Davidson. Yes, that's large and unwieldy, 
but that was the assignment. And I said, I saw the, the opportunity and I understood where it came from. So I didn't have a problem with that because you have to be, you have to be ready for the opportunities and open enough to see that this could be a win-win. And going into the community and finally winning and finally gaining their trust, they told me their stories. And these were stories they hadn't told each other. The community is waning and it's being gentrified out. So we needed to make sure that we got these stories before they were completely gone. So this piece is built off of the several interviews I did over several months. We started this process in 2020. We're now in 2022. So you got to have some stamina. And it's the second time I've been commissioned. The first time I was commissioned was for a small screenplay back in my hometown of Gary with um, director Mark Spencer, who is over the West Side Theater Guild in Gary, Indiana. But it was, like I said, it was for a screenplay. This one was my first theater play. And, you know, I, I gave it everything. Yeah, I swung for the fences for this one. So it is a, a strong story built on the stories of the, of the African-American community in Davidson, North Carolina. Some stories that they did tell each other, some stories that the other families didn't know about a town that was built in a time when segregation ruled, when slavery ruled or was waning and some things that just kept, just kept going and didn't stop. So this play calls attention and shines some light on some old habits some things that impacted both communities, both the African-American community and the predominantly white community of that town that they have to grapple with and they are grappling with. And it just pretty much shows this is the reality. So it's a story that spans 80 years. The letters I used, the interviews became the letters that are part of this story. And I had to interview people not only in Davidson, but also those who moved away, because that's another part of this story is that there are the community, the African-American community is shrinking because people keep leaving. And then the story tells why. Excellent. So that sounds like it was, it was definitely a marathon, not a sprint. Exactly. And how or what was keeping you motivated during this process? You know, you know, interviewing what sounds like, you know, quite a large number of people. I'm passionate about, okay, the other foundation in terms of the journalism aspect is being able to interview people and loving stories. So every time I interviewed somebody new, they gave me a new nugget of a story. They gave me new characters. They gave me new situations. So the motivation was one of, oh my God, I've hit pay dirt because this is a gold mine and people need to hear these stories. These stories are important, not just for Davidson, but it's, it's a piece of Americana. And it's the piece of Americana history that keeps being discussed and not wanting to be dealt with. And I'm going, it's time out for not dealing with some things. We need to talk. We need to say, hey, here's what stuff is. Here's how it has impacted over generations. And if we don't handle some things, it's going to explode in our face again. But we can heal from this and move forward as people, as community. So that's what that kept my interest. I'm going, oh my God, I've got to tell these stories because I interviewed people who were 90. Oh man. I interviewed, I think the youngest person I may have interviewed may have been in his 40s, but the oldest person was 90. Those people have seen some things. They have yes, seen they have. some things. They have seen some things. They have experienced some things. They have pushed past some things. And some places they got stuck. Some places we as people got stuck. I'm going, it's time for us to be unstuck. So motivation, I love Black people. I love our stories. I love our journey. 
it is a privilege and a blessing to be an African-American woman and to be able to be the, the griot, a 21st century griot of those stories. So I, I take that very seriously. So that was, you know, that, that for me is motivation enough. It's being able to be entrusted with these stories. So now I've got people's stories that they don't even have counts of. And now they're on the record. And now they're on the record. Nicole, that's awesome. That's, that's, what, that's what keeps me motivated, just to ensure that the stories I've been entrusted with are out with for the people. And I want to do it with integrity. I want to do it properly. I'm not interested in anything getting butchered and being shortchanged. Or being glossed over. Yes, ma'am. being glossed over, Mm -hmm. having things pushed up under the rug. I'm like, no, they opened their hearts to me. I've opened my heart in this play and we're going to do it properly. Yeah. I sense the great responsibility that you have for the stories that you were able to, to gather. Yeah. And... Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's that's the keeps you motivated. It it goes so much beyond. Oh, I just want to see my play. Nope. I want this community to hear themselves. Amazing. So speaking of of responsibility and helping people's voices be heard, you are the Carolina's rep for the Dramatist Guild, yes. and I would love to talk to you about how you became involved with that organization and what value you find in membership in that organization. Okay. So knew about the Dramatist Guild because of my time at NYU and knowing that I wanted to be a serious, you know, there are two things that we learned. We, you learned that you wanted to be in the Writers Guild, you know, in terms of screenplays, television, and so on and so forth. But we also knew about the Dramatist Guild and that if you're going to be a serious playwright, that's, you know, you need to make sure that you have that you're a part of that organization, not only for its, its resources, but it has some weight in terms of, you know, when you're saying I'm a member of the Dramatist Guild, that you are saying that your playwriting is first and foremost of your life or being a writer is first and foremost of your life. And you are a professional writer at that. You're not somebody who's just a hobbyist. You are in there, to, you know, you're in it to win it. So I had known about that since I was uh, getting my master's. At that time, it just took me a little while to make the criteria because the thing about them, at least at the time that I that I applied, you had to have a piece put up for money. <laughs> so when you're self-producing sometimes. And this was just to clarify, this was in order to join the guild. This was in order to join the guild. At the time. Yep. At the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but at that time, it was ticket sales at a big theater. And you're going, oh, wow. So I had one in Los Angeles. I'm like, okay, I got my one, but you had to have two. And I'm going, oh, wow. So in between the time that I did that piece, which was in, I co-wrote a piece for Cleo King, who was on Broadway recently for Chicken and Biscuits. Oh, okay. Fabulous actress. Sister I met out in New York and with a whole crew I was with. Wonderful person. She wanted to do her memoir at the time. So she brought me on as a writer. And I co-wrote with another sister. So that was my official one to get into the Dramatist Guild. But I hadn't done another one because everything else was, it wasn't in a quote unquote theater. You know, I'm, I use my churches and other spaces as my black box experience. So that way you can work out some kinks in terms of being a director, being a producer, being a, being a writer. But by the time I got here to Charlotte and I looked up the, the qualifications for getting into the Dramatist Guild, they had 
expanded because they realized there were a lot of us who were putting work up and even that maybe didn't count. Yeah. That it was didn't a count. Major barrier had, to entry. Yeah. Exactly. It was a major barrier to entry. And they realized, you know what, that doesn't make sense. So they opened it up to any place where you sold a ticket, including school auditoriums. They there were some other things that they listed. Well I had just finished a musical that I did for my kids called Shake It Off. So we sold like five dollar tickets. And we, you know, we had a small audience, but we sold the tickets. That's all they needed. And I said, oh, I've got my second one. Okay. I said, oh, I hope they don't care about how many years it was between. And they didn't. So I became an official member in 2017. And from that, been just being able to plug myself into what, what's going on in the theater community and getting connected because coming to Charlotte was a, a faith move. I have cousins in Raleigh, but that's pretty much it. My family is still, you know, my family, immediate family anyway, is still sitting in Indiana. And I have some other relatives in the South, but there's really nobody here in Charlotte. So connecting with the Dramatist Guild was a way to say, okay, I'm here. There's a dramatist here in this area. Let's see what else I can do. They've got a fabulous business center that helps with contracts. They help you in terms of reading contracts. They help you in terms of being able to have the proper contract for whatever you're getting ready to do. You know, you got to get your business taken care of. So they were very helpful in that. You know, so in terms of networking, in terms of classes, in terms of getting your contracts together, in terms of just knowing the landscape of theater and how it's changing, my gosh, it's been invaluable. It's been really invaluable. And then being able to get plugged in as another avenue in terms of, you know, me wanting to do this playwriting thing on a professional level and not catch as you catch can. Yeah, It's allowed me to move faster and open me up to other avenues of getting work out. Would you so, say there's an ideal time to join the guild? They have different levels. And there's a level for college students. There's a level for people who are transitioning from, from a hobbyist into this is what you want to do. So there are different levels of membership. And the guild is trying to catch people at any point to say, hey, we're here to help. Hey, we're here to guide. Hey, we're here as a soundboard. There are resources for you to help you maneuver through the landscape of theater. Once you get in, there's so many resources for you. Right now, we're in the midst of, at least for April, we're doing what's called end of play. And this is just a national push to ensure or to help writers finish those plays. Because at the end of the day, you can't get in the game if you don't have anything to play with. So you got to get your pieces done. And, and starting them's easy, finishing them is hard. <laughs> I've always said that if you write a page a day, by the time the year is up, your book is finished. If you take just a little bit of time every day and you're writing every day, by the time you finish a few weeks, if you're consistent, you know, your 10 minute play is done. Monologues can be finished. A one act can be finished. You can do a full length piece, but you've got to be consistent in it. And I see, you know, with the Dramatist Guild, get in where you fit in. And get the resources because they're there for you. She's not lying, y'all. <laughs> uh -uh. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did want to ask, is there anything else that you want to share about yourself or your process or your experience as a theater artist thus far? Wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I've, I've had an incredible journey um, from Gary, Indiana, to one side on the East Coast, to the other side on the West Coast, and finally winding up down here in the South. Wouldn't change it for anything. I'm a proponent of telling your stories. I believe everybody has one. Write it down. Put it, you know, tell it in a, 
in, in a digital, tell it to your cell phone, but get your stories out. Don't sit on them. I finally got to a place where I just said, you know what? I'm so tired of writing doorstoppers. And a doorstopper is literally a script that goes nowhere. Mm. It just keeps the door open. Find opportunities and go after them. You know, if I could, if I could say nothing else and get out of your own way because theater and writing is not what I thought it would be when I was a young person at Northwestern. I've had to open myself up for other opportunities and other ways of writing and other ways of telling stories. And okay, so it wasn't journalistic, but I now have had, I've had a radio show. I have written commercials. I've written for advertising companies. I am writing, you know, I've written for magazines or writing for magazines now and, and helping people with all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways to do it. Just tell the story, tell your story. And even if you get rejection letters, oh my gosh, I could paint walls with rejection letters. Write anyway, because each time that you write, you're going to improve. Writing is just rewriting. Yes. So don't, be, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't be afraid of the rewrite process. In fact, embrace it because that's your best friend. When you are trying to find your style, when you're trying to find your voice, when you are trying to get your story out, I can't tell you. I've got, I've got stories where, you know, big girls like me are the main character and have been told, does she need to be that big? Does she need to be black? Does she need to be this? Does she need to be that? And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, yes. <laughs> and I decide I'm not going to change for them. That's why I, I did self-publishing, because self-producing, because I wasn't going to change for somebody. Nicole, and you have to be willing to do that. It's true. Nicole, thank you so much. This has been such a glorious conversation. And I know that it's going to be an inspiration for the people that hear it. So thank you. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers, and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch. <laughs>